footsteps behind you as you enter the woods. Night draws back its cape. Light illumines your path. Open your eyes. Listen. Welcome to Dark Softly Tales. Dark stories for dark hearts. I'm Mav Sky. Good evening, and welcome to your nightmares. And another episode of your favorite horror storytelling podcast, Dark Softly Tales. I'm your host, Mav, and I will be guiding you through the apocalypse this evening. But first, I want to take a moment and ask you for your stories. Yes, your stories, your true stories for our True Tales to Tell in the Dark episodes that I will be starting in March. If you have a true scary story to tell, please email it to darksoftlytales at gmail.com. You can also check the show notes for details. I also want to mention that I will be releasing a bonus Valentine's episode on February 14th, so be sure to look for that. Now, back to our apocalyptic tale. It's the month of February, and when I thought over all the stories I had involving romance, this is the one that came to mind. It's not the typical romance one may expect, but the story deals with ancient themes. And when you're dealing with age-old themes, you've got to get back to the basics. And by basics, I mean running practically naked through a desert with a pistol in your hand, the enemy at your back, and no one to trust but the person at your side. Think of when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. This is my adventurous version of that. One of my favorite things to say is choose your own adventure. Just like those old books in the 80s, remember that? Always choose your own adventure. And with that in mind, let's get back to this adventure. Don't let the colossal mole rats shooting golden laser beams from their eyes scare you too much. After all, they're just doing what they've been told to do. Though, you and I know better. Let's dive in, shall we? Take my hand and hang on tight as we journey into the dark softly. Gods, Guns, and Serpent Tongues by Mavsky Him They stood back to back in the blaze of the red desert sunset. He held a semi-automatic shotgun. She, a 44 Magnum. He faced west toward the setting sun. She, east. He sweated like an overridden horse. She breathed like one. Together, they stank like one. Two seconds ticked by. It was like waiting for a grenade to blow. Tick, tick. In the west, 50 yards down, a colossal mole rat raised its ugly head from a crack in the desert floor. Golden laser beams already filled its eyes. Its giant teeth gnashed like a zombie coke head in need of a fix. He aimed and fired the shotgun. Duck in the west! They both turned, smooth as music, so she faced west, 
and he the east. He reloaded as she emptied the magnum. The mole rat took three blasts to the gut and shot golden lasers from its eyes. Laser! He wrapped an arm around her waist while she continued to fire. He knocked her to the sand just as a laser beam blazed overhead. It singed her blonde hair. He grabbed a handful of sand and smothered the flames as she lay on her stomach, hands supporting her bad wrist, aiming at the mole's right golden eye. The mole rat's eye exploded into golden ooze. The mole rat roared and heaved its white, whalish body from the crack onto the desert floor, squirming like an obese worm. The critters were at least 25 feet tall and half as wide. She aimed for the left eye, breathed, pulled the trigger. It exploded too, but not before the mole rat zapped one last laser beam. Inches in front of them, the sandy floor exploded into flames. He grabbed her waist. She wrapped her arms about his neck, and together, almost as a mantra, they shrieked, Roll! Holding on to each other's arms, they rolled through the sand away from the flames, the motion extinguishing the fire on their clothes. Get off of me! You smell! She shoved him away and inspected her t-shirt, sighing. The fire had burned the lower half, leaving a wide gap between her ribs and the button snap of her cut-off jeans. Nothing like a duck to work up a good sweat. He sniffed his armpit and winked at her. She flipped him the bird. He flipped it back. Neither of them meant it, and they both knew it. She held up the burned part of her shirt. It was my last one. He nodded. Soon, you're going to have to go all Tarzan Jane with a moleskin. Maybe call up some baboons and have them make us some dinner. He swore he'd seen a baboon once out in the desert, late at night when he was alone. The fuzzy creature had silver teeth. It had hissed at him and run away. She glanced over at him, running a hand down the singed part of her hair. You're a fine one to speak, Tarzan. And the truth be told, he did resemble Tarzan. He wore a moleskin loincloth, his clothes burnt long ago. A nice tan covered his well-muscled shoulders. What, this old thing? He lifted the bottom edges of the skin and curtsied. Madame, your kindness surpasses you. They glared at each other. In the times of the colossal white mole rats that shot laser beams out of their eyes, it was survival of the fittest. They did what it took to survive. Sarcasm was as necessary a defense as a shotgun. He stood and offered her his hand. I don't hate you. She took it and let him pull her to her feet. I don't hate you either. A brief electricity passed between them before they dropped hands and walked back to where they'd abandoned their weapons. She picked up the smoldering revolver, aimed at the nasty mole rat's gut, and pulled the trigger. The mole rat's belly made a hollow as it swallowed the bullet. Well, it still works. He checked the shotgun's action, cocked it, and fired. Mine's good. She nodded, and they both walked to the mole rat. Its massive, hairless body lay on its side, feet sticking into its hidey hole. Liquid goo concealed its ghostly white complexion. Black tumors hung off its gerbil cheeks like haggard witch tits. Its mouth lay open, 
the two fangs in its upper jaw poked into the sand. Golden goop flowed onto its tongue. Half-digested worms still squirmed, caught up in the bottom teeth. She opened her mouth to speak, then shed it and bent over, clutching at her stomach. He said, Pretty gross, huh? She shook her head. He said, Oh, is it the sickness? She nodded and turned away. He didn't need to see the expression on her face to know it held shame. She was 12 weeks pregnant. He pulled the Bowie knife from the sheath tied to his upper thigh. I'll get it started. She nodded again, face still turned toward the sunset. I'll finish up. An hour later, they had a dismembered mole rat thigh. By the time they dragged it back to the camp, the sky was full with a silver moon. Wedgets had begun their descent from the stars. He stirred up the coals while she cut tender meat from the thigh and put it on the clay tray over the fire. They both sat back and gazed at the heavens. The winged serpents glided like a sea of quicksilver across the night sky. When the mass reached Earth's atmosphere, a spark lit up the sky like lightning. The wedgets fled in different directions, to different continents, anxious to patrol. They were generally peaceful creatures. However, if they spotted an enemy of Horus, or sensed harmful intent, they'd spit poison acid at their victim's skin, far more potent than the mole rat's laser beams. She glanced away from the wedgets. I miss my iPhone. He laughed. She gazed over at him. Before the polar switch, I had just discovered Emily Autumn's music. I had heard Dead is the New Alive at the gym and wanted to listen to the rest of the album. I never got a chance. Now it's all gone. The music. He shook his head. I miss my Tom Waits album. She stoked the fire with a stick and said, There is the light in the forest. He pointed at her. Just the right bullets. She nodded, laughing, and they both hummed the lyrics for a moment. Then she interrupted. He was of Ra. He glanced down from the stars to the fire. Nah, Waits was of Horus. She dropped the stick. No, I've told you. He flicked his wrist and put the other hand on his waist. He mocked. I totally saw his eyes on a YouTube video, and they were golden. Blah, 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 blah. She couldn't help but giggle as she checked the mole meat. It was still pink, so she flipped it over. I swear, they were golden, I'm telling you. He mimicked her again, and on they carried the same conversation of almost every night for the past month. She wrapped her shoulders with a moleskin and stretched out beside the fire. He held his shotgun, although they both knew he wouldn't need it until the morning. Horus ruled the night, spreading hypnotism over all things raw. The god and his minions hibernated. Sometimes I'm afraid. She had never said this before. He rubbed a moleskin cloth over the barrel of his shotgun and glanced at her bare stomach in the moonlight. There was a slight bump where he had laid smooth before, a growing child. We'll make do, he said. She touched her stomach, her fingers caressing the skin. Not of this. She pulled the burnt t-shirt down over her belly button, but it bounced back up to her ribs, so she pulled the moleskin tighter around her breasts. What if I'm a raw? 
It was an idea he'd considered and discarded. If you were of Ra, you'd be asleep, and those critters. He pointed his gun at a widget snaking through the air 50 feet over their heads. Would have spit acid all over you by now. But I'm with you, so perhaps it is Horus's protection over you that also cloaks me. Perhaps the widgets are blind the same way the mole rats are blind when looking at the sun. He laughed. Good imagination in that head of yours, but I'm pretty sure the wedgets would have figured you out by now. Besides, the mole rats wouldn't be so desperate to blast us to smithereens. She turned to him. Same thing. They know you are of Horus, and they assume I am too. He shrugged. Look, I'm just saying. She snapped. You know who you are. You know... Even as she said this, his eyes glinted from blue to silver, then blue again. I hate it when you do that. What? When your eyes change like that. And again, they glinted silver. He was unaware of what his eyes did or did not do. After the rains once, he'd seen his reflection in a puddle of mud. All he saw were the heavy lines under his eyes and the burn scars from the first horde of mole rats. He'd escaped. Everyone knew Horus protected his own. But in these days of war, Horus and Ra fought long and hard for their warriors. Not even they knew who would live or die. He set his shotgun aside, and with the skin he had used to clean his gun, removed the clay tray from the fire. He set it aside and tore off a bite of meat with his teeth, checking for tenderness. It was good. He turned towards her. Dinner's up. But she was fast asleep. He picked up his moleskin blanket and covered her lower half, then resumed his spot beside the fire. He ate a few more strips of meat, loaded his shotgun, and lay down beside it. The silver-winged serpents in the sky lulled him to a safe sleep. Ra would rise with the morning sun, and he would be ready. She. She dreamed of quick silver horses galloping over a sea of corn stalks. The sun loomed high above, its rays occasionally bursting out in blinding beams the color of lava. In the distance, she heard drums beating in perfect time to the galloping herd, in perfect time to her heartbeat. A screech broke from above the drums. A falcon flew overhead, and with its ice-silver wings outstretched, it circled around the horses over and over. Its shadow grew and stretched over the herd, protecting them from the sun's rays. Angry, the sun flared lava, aiming at the bird, but the bird screeched and rolled around the outburst of light, all the time maintaining its protective shadow over the horses. Then, in fast forward speed, as if throwing a temper tantrum, the sun dashed through the sky and set behind the mountains. The ice-silver falcon led the thundering herd into evening shadows, then faded as night bloomed. The horses had settled, and they were grazing upon the cornstalks, when a roar startled them. They scattered into separate groups, then drew back together like a school of fish, a golden lioness leapt out of the corn, growling and spitting, 
It dashed after one group, then the other, confused by their tactic. A lonely neigh drew the lioness's attention. A foal, unfamiliar with the herd's maneuvers, galloped by itself behind the rest. There was something different about the foal. It wasn't silver like the other horses, but a deep, earthy green. Its long, gangly legs scuttled through the corn, and the lioness sensed its youth and weakness. Alone, it was the perfect prey. The drums beat louder as the lioness bounded toward the green creature. Her golden claws outstretched, drool dripping off her fangs. Cornstalks bowed at her majesty as she approached the foal, giving her even more advantage. When the foal noticed her, it neighed and dashed to the left and then to the right. Tired of the chase, the lioness pounced. In one graceful motion, the giant cat was on the foal's back, ripping at its neck. The green foal went down with the lioness, both hidden by blood-splattered cornstalks. The drum slowed to a stop as life faded from the foal. Her. She awoke screaming. Her fingers protectively clutched at her throat. She quieted as the dream faded, and she recognized her surroundings. She was on her side, facing opposite the campfire, an endless sea of sand stretching before her. Ra's sun had just begun to rise. Its golden rays reached possessively like cat claws over and into the blue sky. All was quiet, and suddenly she was horribly afraid, afraid that he was gone that he'd left in the middle of the night, Horace's shadow protecting and guiding him within ice-silver wings. She sat upright and turned. Where? But he was still there, loading up the clay tray and ammo into his moleskin, then taking a swig of precious water from the moleskin flask. He noticed her up and looking at him. Hey, bright eyes. Bad dreams again? She nodded. He held up the flask. Water? She nodded again and held out her hands. He tossed the flask to her. There's some leftover meat if you want some. Overcooked it a bit. Tastes like bacon. He started laughing at himself. She wished she could share his humor, but it seemed the gods left that out of her DNA. Sarcasm, yes. Humor, no. She took a twisted bit of meat and brought it to her mouth. Mole rat meat wasn't tasty, but it was all they had found to survive on. He slung the sling over his broad shoulders, then picked up his shotgun and slid it into the makeshift holster on his thigh. We need to trek it back to the plane today. I need more ammo, and we're running low on water. She stopped chewing. Wait. I thought we were going to press on another day. Another week. He said, Sorry, sweetheart. Can't take risks like that. But you promised me. We can't live out of that wrecked mess forever, and we need to get out of this desert. Even as she said it, visions of the lioness attacking the foal filled her mind. Her voice rose, panicked. She stood. You promised me two weeks ago 
we'd set out with enough water and ammo to last for a few days' travel. He didn't meet her eyes. The duck sapped most of our water. The only thing that duck got last night was half my shirt. She stretched out the portion of burnt shirt and noticed her stomach had grown considerably overnight. She rolled her fingers over her cantaloupe-sized abdomen. Dear Ra, he chuckled. Don't go ticking him off, please. Too early in the morning. Look at me. Her voice shook. He was beside her now, observing her stomach, too. She glanced up at him. What does it mean? He lifted her hands gently from her stomach and held them in his. I don't know. I don't know about these kinds of things. I mean, aren't you supposed to... Yes, she said more sharply than she meant to, but not like this, not overnight. It'd been just two months ago that she found out she was pregnant. The morning before the pulls switched inside the hospital room, the doc had snapped off her gloves and said, Yep, your pregger's all right. Now what do you want to do about it? She had touched her stomach, unsure what the doctor had meant. The doc grabbed the clipboard and made notes. We can squeeze in a DNC next week at my clinic. It's quick and painless. Be sure to hand this off to the secretary up front. The doc scribbled some more, tore off the pink sheet of paper and handed it over. She had hesitated, unsure whether she wanted the procedure. Then the earthquake hit. The doctor had dropped the paper and rushed her to the tornado shelter beneath the hospital along with the other patients. They re-emerged weeks later to get on the refugee plane. Texas was frozen over like a giant popsicle. Buildings and houses, palm trees and oaks remained perfectly intact and perfectly iced over. That was all she was able to glimpse before she was rushed into one of the refugee planes with other patients and flown off into the clouds. They had all crowded around the windows, not recognizing the sea of frozen land below them. En route to Seattle, the authorities had been given word that the old mining caves up in Rainier's mountains had become a safe haven for many. It was a natural sanctuary against the harsh weather and rations for hundreds of thousands had been stored up. All that changed when the mole rats emerged that sunset and aimed their laser beams at the airplanes. Every single one of them had gone down, and the fleeing survivors were burnt to a crisp by the mole rat's attack. Or so she'd heard. She didn't remember anything except the loud noise and the feeling of falling. He told her that he'd found her tucked into a seat a mile away from the crashes. He landed in the same place, and the moles had not detected them. He says it was the protection of horse, but she was not so sure. Months before the polar shifts, people had begun having dreams. All people from every corner of the globe. It seemed the entirety of mankind had been split into thirds. One third dreamed of an onyx sphinx sitting on golden sand, blood pouring out of the sky as raindrops. The heaven shouted, Ra! Raw, as blood filled up the cracks in the desert. 
bloody flower blooms blossomed on golden stems. Those who dreamed of the Sphinx were of Ra. In a world of supreme technological advancement, old ways forgotten, people did not know who or what Ra was. So they blamed the collective dreams on secret nanobot technology. The nanobots supposedly drifted down from airplane contrails, mingled with the air, and were inhaled by the vulnerable population. According to the legend, Nazi scientists hiding in third world countries, hired by the Tea Party, created the nanobots. Their mission was simple, divide the world. Set those who were of Ra at war with all the others. Some have speculated that Ra, R-A, stood for Revolt Against America. Another third dreamed of an ice-silver falcon soaring around a silver moon. Stars shone brightly against the navy blue sky. They sang in sweet voices, praising the moon as its sapphire eye opened. Horus, Horus, sang the stars to their god. His eye opened wide and aware. These people did not believe in Nazi scientists or Tea Party operatives. They believed their minds were being activated by tiny laser discs placed inside the amygdala. These were implanted by lizard people who lived on the dark side of the moon. Lizard civilization on the moon rose to number one on the Google and Yahoo search engines. It became the number one trending topic on Twitter. Tumblr held millions of random pictures and drawings of what the majestic lizard civilization looked like, what they ate, how they procreated. It trended on Twitter for weeks until Miley Cyrus came out of the closet, announcing she was of the third and much smaller group of people. The third group dreamed of nothing, their dreams pitch black. And even more, they felt nothing. Their emotions drained away as if seeping through the earth into a gigantic black hole of depression. These people were herded into hospitals, medicated, observed. These people had no predictions of the future. They didn't blame political parties or lizard civilizations. Instead, the third kind developed the highest suicide rate in world history. They were branded, microchipped, braceleted. The bracelet marked their kinds as unbelievers. It also listed their meds and which doctor they belonged to. Being unimportant as unbelievers, they sat in their homes, apartments, basements, rotting away. Soon after Miley's announcement, she cut out her tongue with a dinner knife and threw it off the balcony of a second-story restaurant. Miley's tongue fell into the purse of a woman who claimed Ra as her god. The woman picked Miley's tongue out of her bag in front of the small crowd that had gathered around her, looked up at the pop star watching from the balcony, and brought the tongue to her lips as her eyes flashed golden. The media ate it up. Miley's tongue broke new trending records on Twitter. Miley's tongue had trended when it was in her mouth, but detached, it was a much more exciting story, especially when it went up for auction on eBay. 
Those days were gone now. It was just she and he out in the middle of this godforsaken desert. But godforsaken was the wrong word. The gods were everywhere, in everything, playing their cards, moving their pieces, a couple of kittens fighting over a dying bird. She was of the third group. Black dreams, sullen thoughts. She considered putting a pistol to her head the day before she had found out she was pregnant, the day before the polar switch. But after the switch, her dreams became alive again. They filled her with dread and fear. She was still called an unbeliever, but it was as if a switch had been flipped inside her brain from dead to alive. Before, in her near catonic depression, living in the favor of one god or the other meant nothing to her. Now, she was an orphan in the world of two warring gods. What scared her even more was the living being thriving in her womb. She was not a virgin, not by a long shot, but she hadn't been with a man in months either. Between her depression, medication, and the fact that every other living soul was caught up in Team Ra or Team Horus, the chances for a one-night stand had dropped to zero. But who was the father? And why couldn't she remember? Had someone raped her while she was sedated? She pushed away the suspicion, as she often did. But it always popped up again. It seemed the only real option. A hot, dry breeze woke her from her thoughts. She was in the desert, with him. They hadn't told each other their names. She preferred it this way, and so did he. She placed her hands on her stomach again, in awe, afraid. She heard him sigh. Look, I know I promised you we'd go further, but what's the point? There's nothing but desert for miles probably hundreds of miles. The ducks will be out again at sunset, and I'd feel better to have some steel between us and them. Us and them. He was of Horus, obviously against Ra. That much was made clear by the dreams. But she was of nothing, no one, an unbeliever. So how could she and he be on the same side, on the same team? You mean... Between him and you. His facial expression turned puzzled. What? Horus and Ra. You and Ra. No, no, he said, his voice gentle. He put a reassuring hand on her shoulder. Us as in you and me. I am of neither. You don't know that. Besides, if you are of Ra, wouldn't Horus have told me? He's protecting us. That's why we are still alive. She rolled her eyes and stepped away from his hand. She shook her head. He is protecting you. And for what purpose? What does he want you to do? He frowned. And that was when she knew he was hiding something. Making up her mind, she squatted to the earth and began rolling up her moleskin blanket and picking up her own sling. I'm not going back. He put his hands on his hips and glared up into the sky. His enemy reigned in heat from above. 
Why do you have to be difficult? She gathered her things methodically, robotically. Not that she had a lot. A few flint stones, a hairbrush, vitamins she had found in the wreckage of the refugee planes, along with an unopened water bottle. She'd been saving that for an emergency. She also had an ample supply of ammo with her, more than he knew. She swung her sling over her shoulder. I don't know you, and I don't need... Her lips trembled, and the words froze in her mouth. He put both hands on her shoulders, stilling her. You've known me for weeks. We take care of each other. We are all that's left, the only two left for all we know. She refused to meet his eyes. Her mind was made up. I don't trust you. Because I'm of Horus? This broke her frozen spell, and she pushed him away. I don't give a shit who you are of. There is something you're not telling me. Not just now, but all this time. She turned away from him and stated something that had been eating at her since they first met. I don't believe you just happened to land by me when the airplanes blew. I don't believe you were even on the airplanes. She did look him in the eye now, and it was his turn to glance away. It was his turn to be silent. Anger smoldered in her usually quiet voice. I fucking knew it. He opened his mouth to reply, but nothing came out. He shrugged, turned up his palms. What do you want me to say? She turned her back on him and walked west, toward the sun, toward Ra. What about the baby? He asked. She didn't reply, just walked. With every step, she felt another emotion, a singing one. She was alone. A different kind of isolation than when she'd laid in bed behind a black curtain of medication and despair. This time, she was utterly alone. And this time, she felt it. After a while, she couldn't help but turn around and look back at him. He was gone. The land lay flat for miles in every direction. She wondered how she couldn't see him, but she supposed it didn't matter. She made up her mind, and she was going to carry through with it, even if it killed her. Thank you for tuning in and listening to the longer story of part one of God's Guns and Serpent Tongues. If you enjoyed the story, please rate, review, or subscribe. Also, feel free to say hello on Twitter or Facebook. Your support means so much, and it keeps the show going. Be sure to check out the bonus episode this Friday. It will be very short, but one my fans have always loved. And then I'll be back on Monday with part two of God's Guns and Serpent Tongues. Until then, shine bright, dark hearts.